Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Dinah Hannaford to tell us all about her recent book from Stanford University Press titled Aid and the Help, International Development and the Transnational Extraction of Care, which is a really interesting examination of something that perhaps often goes unnoticed. The fact that many expatriates, however we might define that, but especially in the realm of development, so government aid agencies, the UN, NGOs, Oxfam, etc., um, quite often, if they're living overseas, will hire domestic workers. Um, that's not really what their job officially focuses on. And often what we think about is what their job is officially focused on. Um, Dinah, thankfully, takes us beyond that and thinks about, hang on a second, what's happening here with these domestic workers? What does that tell us about relationships um, between different countries, between different types of work? What does this tell us about labor? How can we think about all of these things in this particular context? Um, So the book answers and raises and examines a whole bunch of really interesting questions. So Dinah, thank you so much for being on the podcast to tell us about it. Thank you so much for having me. Before we dive into the details of the book, however, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining sort of why you decided to write this and a bit of the context of the book? Sure. Thanks again for having me. Um, So I'm Dinah Hannaford. I'm an associate professor at the University of Houston. I'm a cultural anthropologist by training, and most of my research is ethnographic. And I thought I've been kind of thinking about the concept of this book even before I officially started doing the research for it. Living in Senegal, both as a student, as doing as a researcher doing dissertation work, and also working for an NGO in the capital of Senegal, Dakar, brought up a lot of questions for me about how the aid industry works, how it's staffed, how it decides what projects are important, and who should be implementing them, and also about how expatriates live in West Africa in general. So um, one of the things that brought me to this project is that my first book, which is called Marriage Without Borders, which came out in 2017, is all about migration out of Senegal. And there is a lot of research on migration out of Senegal. And I was thinking about the expatriates that I had saw all around me and thinking of them as economic migrants to Senegal in a way that we don't usually think of expats as economic migrants, um, that made me want to think about how they live and work and play while they're overseas and how they solicit paid care is one of the ways that they live overseas. So I found in my looking at the international aid, aid, aid industry and literature about it, this dynamic was never discussed. As you said, it's very under discussed. And 
it was something that to me opened up a lot of opportunities to explore more about this industry and about, as you said, relationships between countries um, through this prism of what seems like a very mundane and a very personal kind of intimate relationship between people in their homes, people who are hired to do domestic labor in the homes. So that's why I wanted to write this. And, um, and it's been, for me, a really eye-opening experience um, to think about these questions in relation to one another. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, and I think I want to dive into that idea of kind of the intimate and the unexamined. Um, because, of course, we first have to understand sort of who are, what does it mean to have a domestic worker in this context, right? What exactly are expats recruiting domestic workers to do? What do they kind of, what do they expect of these domestic workers? How are they trying to recruit them? And of course, on the other side, what are people who are hiring themselves as domestic workers? What are they expecting in terms of tasks and payment and that sort of thing? Yeah, great questions. Well, so what's interesting is that many aid workers would not have domestic workers in their home back in their home countries. It was the very fact of being in the developing world which made having domestic workers seem not only like a possibility, but like almost required. Um, there was a lot of pressure from other domestic from other aid workers to hire domestic workers. And it was so considered so mundane and so normal that people who wouldn't have thought to do it back home in, let's say, London or Geneva or Washington, DC, would almost universally hire domestic workers to work in their homes while overseas. Again, a big part of that is because it's so affordable, right? We might think of having a maid as something that only really the elite, the rich, the very um, you know aristocratic people do when back in our home countries. But because it's so normalized in developing countries, again, even for the local middle classes to have domestic workers, that it just becomes something that aid workers do as a matter of course. And the way that they recruit them is different in different countries. What's really interesting about Senegal is that the kind of broker agencies that will find someone for you are not very popular among expats in Senegal, um, partly because they have a bad reputation of, of kind of falsifying the the credentials of the people that they hire out. And so most people do it in um, a couple of different ways. One of them is, is that they, what they call inherit domestic workers, which is kind of an icky term and actually very revealing in certain ways. But if they know someone who had previously worked in their job had just left for another post overseas, they would take on the same domestic workers that had worked for those people. Another thing they'll do is um, when domestic when expat aid workers are leaving the country, they'll post a classified ad um, offering their nanny, their maid, their gardener, their chauffeur as someone sh who should be hired by other expats. So that those kinds of classified ads are often consulted by people who've just arrived in town and are looking for domestic help. Um, and I so the whole chapter of the book analyzes these classified ads and to see just what you're asking, what are the kinds of expectations that aid workers um, specifically, but expats in general have for domestic workers? And what I found is it's very gendered, right? They're um, certain words that get used over and over again for the kinds of domestic work that are coded feminine, like maids and nannies, and other kinds of qualities and words that are used for the kinds of domestic work that are coded masculine. So chauffeurs, security guards, gardeners, things like that. Um, and so one of the things that was really revealing to me is that there were specialized skills that people wanted from these domestic workers. We think of this as unskilled labor, right? But of course it isn't. And there are very specialized skills that expats wanted from their domestic workers that would only come from being familiar with working in expat homes. So some of the qualities that and the um, skills that were touted in these classified ads would be things like for a nanny, maybe um, is great at Lego, <laughs> or um, for a housekeeper could be bakes a great banana bread, right? These kinds of um, things that wouldn't have been learned except on the job working for other expats. So that's one quality that was really prized is, is that they would have experience working for other expats. Um, something for security guards might be um, friendly, 
right, was a really important quality for a security guard, which is kind of funny if you think about what the job of the security guard is, which is to guard the home. Friendliness might not seem like an important quality, but I think for what the what the expats were communicating to one another is this isn't some scary guy who you're going to be afraid of, right? This is somebody who you can interact with positively um, as a member of your extended household. So all of these, these words to me read um, with really particular qualities about what might be anticipated um, as a negative quality and that this person didn't have it, or what are these specialized skills that these workers have. And what wasn't discussed mostly in those ads was salary. Um, and I think that's really interesting too, that that the, that was kind of a murkier and more nebulous subject when I talked to, when I interviewed aid workers about their the salaries that they paid, they didn't know what their coworkers paid. They didn't know exactly what friends paid. It was something that was talked about maybe in hush whispers with a trusted com- friend or colleague, but it was not something that was openly discussed and not even on these classified ads. And people had a lot of concern about um, paying a fair wage, but also not being taken advantage of. And that to me was really interesting. Hmm. That is really interesting. And given this idea of kind of experience in different expat houses, what did the domestic workers that you spoke to, what did they kind of expect in terms of, you know, the tasks they would be assigned? Were there differences between kind of, well, if I work in an expat household, it'll be different from working in a local household in this way or things like that kind of, if, if we if we have some understanding now of what the expats wanted from the workers, what did the workers expect from working in those sorts of households? Yeah, great question. So the the domestic workers that I spoke to, many of them had been domestic workers in Senegalese households before they made what they would see as kind of a promotion to working in expat households. It was generally acknowledged both among the domestic workers and the expats that working in an expat household was preferable to working in a Senegalese household for most of the time. Um, And the reasons that it was preferable were, were a higher salary, fewer hours for the most part, even though a lot of domestic workers for expats worked full days, five days a week, um, sometimes even six days a week. Uh, For Senegalese families, they felt like they were on call for much longer and their duties were much more um, flexible, meaning that they could be called upon to do all kinds of different things. Also, the conditions of work in an expat household were domestic workers found to be much easier. Domestic workers who worked in expat households often had access to washing machines and dryers if they were working for people who were who had these apartments that were furnished by the UN or by um, the government agency that their employer worked for. There were vacuum cleaners. There were all these kinds of things that made the workload actually a lot lighter than doing laundry by hand, for example, or um, by yeah, scrubbing the floor with a rag. So all of these kinds of things um, were seen as perks and the domestic workers thought of this work as a better situation than working for Senegalese families. That said, there were also kind of differences between um, between jobs. You know, certain people, certain domestic workers I spoke to didn't want to work with children because that's a lot more work. Others um, preferred to work with children because they thought they might learn more English that way if they were working for, let's say, an English or an American family. So there were different kinds of things, obviously, the individual domestic workers preferred, um, but all of them agreed that working in expat households was a better situation than working for a local family. So given that although a lot of these... um advertisements were really consistent. I mean, I would definitely point listeners to the book for kind of all the details of this analysis of the ads. It's really, when you say that the words are gendered, you're really not kidding. Um, It's very clear. But as you've already mentioned, wages were not part of that sort of upfront discussion. So how was the idea of a fair wage conceptualized by both the employers and the employees? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it's so unregulated, as domestic work often is in most contexts, totally unregulated, right? There aren't um, minimum wages applied, even though there should be, right? Legally, Senegal has a minimum wage, but this isn't something that employers or employees really thought of as relevant because domestic work is so unregulated um, and unformalized, right? Such informal work. So often it was up to the aid worker and the domestic worker to negotiate between each other what would be 
a wage that was acceptable to both parties. And so aid workers told me about their real anxiety around not wanting to pay unfair wages, but also not wanting to feel like they got exploited by the domestic worker, which is really interesting when you think about the disparity between the kind of income that they earned and the kind of wages that they pay, which is a huge disparity, right? They don't pay what would be considered a living wage back in their home country to these domestic workers. They're exploiting a, a, a really they're exploiting the poverty that ostensibly brought them to this country, right, to get these really cheap domestic services. So um, in a way, I found that anxiety about being exploited really interesting. Um, but I think there's a lot wrapped into it, right? You don't want to be a fool who doesn't know what the what's you don't you don't want to be a parody kind of of a clueless foreigner, right? You want to be savvy. Um, as an aid worker, you want to be someone who's in touch with what's going on and not um, and not feel taken advantage of. So, so that concern was really um, acute for them. And often, I found in interviews with these aid workers, who again were, were virtual strangers to me and I to them, would ask me, "Do you think I'm paying too much? Do you think I'm paying too little? Is this what other people are paying?" Right? They would, be, even though they had access to other friends and colleagues, they, they felt more comfortable since we were having a conversation about that, checking in with me, is this, is what I'm paying the right thing, which what I found very interesting as well. Um, and for these, ex- these kind of negotiations with domestic workers, um, one woman I talk about in the book, um, came to her employers with her for, with her previous wage from working in an expat household and said, this is what I was making. I would like to make this again. Right. And that was, um, in a, a popular way among domestic workers to have a baseline to start at. Um, and some aid workers told me that they imp- increased the wage that the person was making, just like they would expect to have on their next position, they themselves would want to raise to take their next job. They felt that that was only fair. But again, these were the negotiations were often fraught and a little bit awkward. Um, both parties told me that these were kind of awkward because for the domestic worker, they really wanted this employment and needed this income. And so you want to make sure that you're not being exploited by accepting the first thing that is offered to you, but you also don't want to alienate this potential future boss by seeming very demanding. So it was a, a really delicate dance that was being done in these negotiations. And I think the aid workers seemed most comfortable just hearing what had been the previous wage and using that as a guide rather than thinking about, well, what percentage of my salary, what do I think is fair for this job, right? Thinking what going along with what the market is was important. I also heard an incident of um, a new colleague coming to join an office and asking around her colleagues, what were they paying for their housekeeper so that she could begin a negotiation with her future housekeeper. And um, when they heard the disparity between the different colleagues, there was a lot of anger, not on the part of the people paying a lot towards the people paying very little, but on the people paying very little were very angry to hear that expats were paying way above the market rate, which um, is really revealing to me too. I think there's some concern um, about not inflating this um, market. But again, when you think about the salaries that expats are making in these jobs compared to the salaries they are paying for their domestic work. It is the disparity is so huge that nickel and diming seems was really surprising to me how, how often that became a part of the negotiation. I'd love to ask a follow-up on that given that um, there was kind of, I mean, some discussion, but very sort of ad hoc discussion, how often when you talk to these people, did you find that the range of salaries being paid was actually a lot? Like how much did kind of the market reach some kind of equilibrium versus things going way all over the scale to some extent because no one was talking about it? I think there were there was an equilibrium. That's a good question. And I think in some ways, um, people were getting information from about this kind of range. And, and I found a pretty... Um, I would say there was about maybe a $200 range per month in terms of salaries, which is not that big. Um, although it is big considering that the average salary was about $250 to $300 a month for full-time five-day-a-week domestic work. Um, so so there, there was some range. And I, you know, it was interesting to me when certain aid workers told me explicitly 
that um, they think Americans overpay, for example, and that so there even within national groups of expats, there were different ideas about what the going rate should be. Um, and I found that the domestic workers, one of the biggest powers they have, obviously, is quitting and taking another job. So um, that when salary negotiations happened, let's say at the end of the first year, right, people, Senegalese domestic workers expected some kind of raise at the end of the first year. And so that could be a moment where you've made yourself indispensable and there is a lot more wiggle room to um, ask for more. However, at the same time, the kind of effective relationship between the aid worker and the domestic worker by a year in, you know, there's more intimacy and emotional connection. So that can also be a tricky time for domestic workers to push for a higher salary just because that could trouble some of the goodwill from their employers that they also count on to, for continued employment. So again, it's it's always a touchy subject and a tricky dance to figure out how to um, maintain good relations and feel good about the working relationship while also being sure that you're being paid an adequate wage or you're paying what feels comfortable. So obviously, one of the reasons this is tricky, um, this is so touchy and difficult to dance around, um, is, of course, what you've already briefly mentioned, the lack of regulation, right? Mm -hmm. So is there any regulation? (laughs) How do sort of both sides of this relationship think about regulation? Is it wanted? Is it not even occur to people? Mm. Yeah, so the domestic workers themselves didn't, there is a a growing call for a formalization of domestic work and organization of domestic workers into some kind of union. Um, That work has been going on in Senegal, but none of the domestic workers I spoke to knew about that work or were really interested in it when I brought it up, um, which was telling to me. I think partly that work tends to focus especially on people working for local families. I think people who work for expat families maybe wouldn't see that they've already kind of gotten a better deal in this in this work category um, than when they worked for local families. So um, it wasn't something, again, that they were familiar with. It's, I think, because there's not, um, because this work is so at, uh, domestic, because it's in the domestic sphere, it's in the home, it's in a private space, it's difficult to organize. Um, there aren't places where maids and nannies and security guards and gardeners all meet up to talk about their work conditions, right? So even the domestic workers that I talked to, they didn't identify with domestic work as their employment identity in certain ways, if you know what I mean. It was the work that they did to earn wages, but it wasn't necessarily um, something that they thought about in terms of solidarity with other workers who worked the same work. So they didn't think about formalization as the path to better conditions for themselves. They thought about finding a good boss as conduct, as part of a um, an effort to get good conditions for themselves and as a very individual kind of thing, not a collective. And then for the employers, um, you would be really surprised, but even the organizations that are working on domestic workers' rights globally have no policy for their expat staff in the employment of domestic people, no policy whatsoever. It is so difficult to find even one organization that has thought this through. And and in some ways, you know, in giving talks about this book and, and connecting with development workers or researchers of development, you know, the the obviousness of the need for this or the the kind of um, logic of putting something in place, even just a code of ethics for your own employees in hiring domestic workers, um, it wouldn't be so difficult to do. But I think it just has not, because this is, takes place in the private sphere, because it's not something that is discussed or acknowledged, and this is true of care work generally, right? There's a real lack of acknowledgement of the importance of care work, whether exported, you know, whether done by um, the employees themselves or ex, ex um, sort of out, outsourced to hired employees, um, that that ignorance of it or or feigned ignorance um, of that kind of work means that 
employers just haven't thought about this. Even I sat down with someone who is an expert in domestic workers' rights globally for the International Organization of Migration. And when she, and they were doing things like helping people who had been trafficked as domestic workers come back to their countries and things like that. And when I asked her about her fellow employees and whether they had formal contracts with their domestic workers, she said, oh, I would never ask my colleagues, Right. Even she, the expert on domestic workers' rights, thought it was too private to be a work matter that she could ask her colleagues. So there's a real disconnect between thinking about the impact of your of aid workers as they solicit paid care in the field as part of the mission of the organization. And I think in general, there's a lot less... Um, reflection on how the presence of aid workers, how their inflated salaries and their perk packages, how those affect the feeling about aid as an industry, aid organizations individually, right? There's a real um, lack of self-reflection about how these issues are related. And that's one of the reasons this book is very important, right? To bring those things up. Um, Another issue I think in some ways almost was like even more buried as something to think about um, is not just housekeepers or nannies, um, but security guards and the role of security, which of course is something that is talked about hugely with expats in the developing world um, in terms of moving there, in terms of offices, in terms of, you know, the big massive SUVs, um, security in terms of physical safety of individuals, both in the public and private sphere in the expat world is talked about a lot. But again, there's this gray area when it comes to security in terms of like your actual house, right? The guard. Um, So what role did you find this played into the domestic life of expat aid workers who, as we said, right, might be used to thinking about this in terms of their job? What did you find when you asked them about it in terms of their personal life? Yeah, it was really interesting to me that a a lot of expats thought of themselves as very vulnerable, while living in Dakar and vulnerable, not just to um, crime or terrorism or the kinds of um, things that you might think about living in a big city anywhere, right? Um, And as a foreigner in a new place, but really um, worried about property crime. And, And remember the dynamic that I talked about of being taken advantage of, there was a lot of fear about petty theft, um, including within their household. So, um, and there, I think the the way I put it in the book and the way I think about it is that having a lot in a context where people around you have very little is an insecure position, right? You, you always are in a position to be targeted for the abundance that you have in relation to the people around you who have so little. And so I think that was really internalized. And I think there's kind of a low level anxiety that a lot of the people that I spoke to feel all the time, um, especially if they um, are very a very visible foreigner, right? In terms of um, race, for example, they thought of themselves as walking targets in a lot of ways and including that did really impact how they how they lived and how they socialized and how they um, treated the people closest to them in their households as well, like their staff. Um, and then security guards were parts of the household, but also kind of external to the household. A lot of expat aid workers have their security guards through agencies that are contracted by their employer. So it's not a direct hiring relationship the way it might be for a nanny or a maid or um, a driver, a chauffeur. So these in some ways were less intimate relationships that they have with their guard. And yet it was someone who was constantly around in the household that you hadn't selected, right? And that you couldn't directly fire. So I heard lots of stories of aid workers having having to go through the agency to ask for a guard to be switched out when they didn't feel comfortable around them, when the person was gruff or um, or sleeping all the time, right? And so there were ways in which this the presence of a security guard was as much a frustration as a source of, um, you know, calm and security for for the aid workers. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, the, 
security workers, especially who worked for these agencies, didn't have much understanding of whether the houses that they were in charge of protecting were of aid workers or diplomats or business people or they the kind of mission of the employer the fact that they were working alongside the aid industry was not something that they were acutely aware of or interested in right these were foreigners and these were people who they'd been hired to um they thought of themselves as as protecting the building much more than the people inside it, which was, again was an interesting dynamic. But I did also meet people who had really friendly relationships with their guards and their um, and brought brought them gifts or shared meals with them or spent you know a lot of time chatting with them each day as they left for the office or came home. So there were there was a real range of effective relationships with guards. Um, but the, and I also met people who were more afraid of their guards than they were relieved to have them guarding. So that it was it was a real range. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. One thing I'd love to pick up on um, that you've mentioned a little bit already is this idea between um, how the expat workers treat and think about their domestic workers and the fact that these expats are working for foreign NGOs most of the time who are thinking about like aid and improving local people's conditions, et cetera. Um, And the example you've shared with us so far suggests that there kind of wasn't really a link being made between those things. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything further you'd like to tell us about your sort of thinking on kind of the links or lack thereof between what people were doing in their private lives and what they were thinking about in their public professional lives. Yeah, thanks. There there are two things that come to mind. One of them is, again, I, I think most of the domestic workers that I spoke to when I asked them, what kinds of projects does your employer work on? Like, what are they doing here in Senegal? And so few of them had any idea, right? Couldn't tell you what sector of development they were in, that they were working for development agencies and not say an embassy. Um, It just seems so divorced from their lives, right? And part of that was because they never asked questions or express much curiosity about like, so what are you doing here? Like, where are you traveling to? And what projects are you engaging there? That just wasn't something that entered into this relationship. And also that the aid workers themselves didn't really think about like, oh, well, I have a Senegalese woman working in my house. Maybe I should ask her about this gender and development project that I'm doing for work, right? What does she think about these, these different policies that we're putting into place, right? It just, it didn't occur to either party that that was something that could be a discussion among them in the mo- for the most part. And that was really interesting to me because I came in, you know, ever the anthropologist, right, assuming that the that I was going to write a book about how aid workers were mining their domestic workers for cultural insight and for information about the country, right? These are often professionals who go from country to country, right? I was just in Tanzania and I'm leaving for the Philippines, right? So they don't have a lot of expertise about the specific culture that they're dropped into and expected to make decisions for or, you know, programming uh, for. And so I assumed that there would be a lot of this kind of going on informally of like, hey, so 
why is it that people from this ethnic group don't get along with people from that ethnic group or whatever kinds of cultural information that might be helpful for them? And I found none of that. (laughs) I was really shocked to find none of that going on. So little of that going on. Um, And that to me was just as interesting a finding, right? Again, that there would be such a divorce between um, the what are we doing here and how are we interacting with local people every day. Um, that, that to me was itself really telling. Mm, absolutely. Um, especially when you go in with one thought and then go, hang on a second. Right. Yeah. Um, when, if we think in some ways back to your first book and what you briefly mentioned about it at the beginning, the kind of idea of migration, One thing you talk about in this book is comparing the experiences and aims of expat workers and domestic workers working for expats. Um, If we look at both of them through the lens of economic migration, kind of what does that comparison through that perspective, um, what do you think that tells us? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, like I said at the beginning, it's very rare to think of expats as economic migrants. There's a real resistance that I think is founded in a kind of colonial and um, racial lens that we have. Even organizations that track migration really closely, like the International Organization of Migration, for example, the IOM or the OECD, have very little to say about expat migration, right? About what we think of as quote unquote expats, about how many, let's say, Western professionals are working in various African countries, right? They don't track those numbers. And that to me says a great deal about who we think should have unfettered access to mobility and who, on the other hand, whose mobility should be controlled and disciplined and rigorously counted and and surveilled. So that to me, um, calling them economic migrants is really important politically to me as a part of this project. And also just helping us think about the fact that the this economic migration moving from, let's say, the north to the south, moving from the west to the developing world in these expat positions in the aid industry affords these people real opportunities and tremendous benefits, both economic and also in terms of lifestyle, right? Being able to have a nanny, a cook, a driver, a security guard, a gardener, right? All these kinds of elevated lifestyle opportunities, living often in villas that are rented and furnished by your agency, um, having more time for yourself, right? So many of, especially of the women aid workers talk to me about work-life balance being impossible to find for professional women at home, but so possible once you can afford this really cheap domestic labor abroad. So talking about how this migration, right, this kind of working overseas in the developing world just afforded all of these benefits for an enhanced lifestyle. And even in terms of um, economic security for their futures, right, a lot of these workers maybe owned a property back home that they were renting out and um, paying the mortgage through the rental. And so that they were earning you know, equity on every year by being abroad and not having to pay for their or not having to pay as much for their um, for their lodging overseas. Um, Also their children, right, often were put into elite international schools and things like that. So reproducing their own class or fashioning their class or even, you know, ensuring the upward mobility of their children through this migration, all of that is economic migration. So it was very important to me to to frame it in these ways. And then with the domestic workers, many of them were migrants from rural areas to the city for this for this wage earning possibilities in domestic work. So they were also migrants, right? Economic migrants, rural to urban migrants. And thinking about the relative precarity of their own situation, many of them had to leave children back in their village um, and, and spouses sometimes too, because they couldn't necessarily afford to house them in Dakar, which is a very expensive city. So what migration offered them was the chance to send money back home, yes, and um, but the kinds of um, really enhanced perks were not what they were living very precariously, most of them in Dakar. And also at the end of their employer's term, they were left without a job and without, you know, most of them weren't saving money. They were living hand to mouth. They weren't creating any plan for retirement, right? They didn't have a 401k building through this work. So there was um, a real, the comparative rewards of their economic migration were so minimal um, that that to me was, was something that I wanted to highlight in this book. 
Mm, thank you for uh, making sure that we think about those implications, as you, of course, do in the book. Um, one thing that has been sort of implied in some of your answers is something I'd love to kind of ask you about directly. This Obviously, with, for example, wages, right? Um, we've already spoken about how that was danced around, how that was hard to bring up, how there wasn't a lot of information. Um, you spoke with the security guards about kind of anxiety and fear that you were often getting from speaking to these expat workers. Um, can you tell us more about how aid workers sort of responded to you when you asked them questions? How did they sort of deflect? How did they exhibit discomfort? How did they try and subvert discomfort when answering these questions? Yeah, thank you. So there were, it was really interesting to me because um, the vast majority of the aid workers that I talked to were really excited that I was doing this project, (laughs) Um, that they felt discomfort about the arrangements themselves. You know, I want to emphasize, and I can be um, a little bit arch when I talk about the aid workers, but I do really want to emphasize that for the most part, all of the aid workers that I talked to were um, kind of left of center, justice-minded people who were not clueless about racial inequality or global disparities. Indeed, those were things that had fueled their interest in getting into development work. So a lot of these dynamics that I'm mentioning were not, they were not blind to them they felt them really deeply as discomfort with the situations that they were in. And so um, I think in some cases, it was a relief to talk to me about these kinds of things. And I think they had um, they had thoughts and opinions and questions, and, um, and it was a, a nice opportunity to get to discuss this with somebody who was really interested in their thoughts. That said, what I noticed in these interviews were three key ways that employers dealt, that aid workers dealt with this discomfort of hiring domestic workers. So not the discomfort of being asked about it necessarily, though, of course, that probably played in to the kinds of answers they gave me to these questions. But I noticed that they had three ways of, of subverting or kind of um, uh, getting away from the discomfort of these arrangements. And one of them was to frame um hiring domestic workers as job creation or a kind of duty that they had to do. Several told me that they didn't want to hire domestic workers, but everybody made them feel like they had to, that if they could create a job for someone there, it was rude to do it themselves or maybe morally bad to do it themselves when they could, that could be a wage for somebody else. So giving themselves a way to think about this as a good thing they were doing for others, not exploiting a really cheap labor pool for their own, you know, enhanced lifestyle. So that was one one thing that they would often do. Um, a second thing would be to focus really um, intently on being a good boss or a nice boss. Um, they were really eager to tell me all the ways that they did nice things for their staff, that they had really close, intimate ties with their staff, that they, you know, telling me details like, well, we invite her children to come with her whenever we have a birthday party, you know, these kinds of things that suggested that they, if had either horizontal power relations with their domestic staff or were just the, an ideal kind of boss. And then part of that was telling me horror stories that they'd heard about other expats and the evil things that they did to their domestic staff. So, right, one way of making themselves, um, as, for, for positioning themselves as good or kind or um, low-key employers was to tell me lots of stories of, of their expat Um, cohort behaving badly with domestic workers, which included making them stay long hours, not paying them enough, not giving them adequate holidays, making them do degrading work. All these kinds of things were, were, um, were stories they told me enthusiastically about other expats. Um, And then they were happy to think of this as a project of calling out those bad behaviors. Um, And then the third thing, which I think is the most interesting in some ways was that a lot of them framed their relationship with their domestic workers as almost an act of development itself. So um, many of them told me that they were engaged in projects of improving the lives of the domestic workers who worked for them in ways that they thought were best. So for example, they would tell me about um, contributing to 
um, the purchase of a house for one of their domestic workers or um, often paying school fees for the domestic workers' children, um, paying for health care bills, right? All these kinds of things. And, and explicitly in terms that reflected development work. So um, several told me about drawing in resources from their their development organization about teaching financial literacy, for example, and using that to teach their domestic worker how to manage their bills, right? Or um, another told me about how she ran a tight ship in the home because she wanted to teach her domestic workers the value of hard work and responsibility, that she felt that this was, um, you know, a, a kind of... a. a generous thing she was doing for her domestic workers. So, and even using um, the language of like capacity building or investment, right? All these kinds of language drawn from development projects. And in this way, instead of, again, thinking of their employment of domestic workers as hiring someone at a very low wages to do care work for you, they could think of themselves as caring for the, their own domestic workers, right? So flipping the script a little bit on who's caring for who and using a lot of the care language that's in development work about caring for the world's poor rather than thinking of themselves as exploiting poverty to get very low wage domestic work. So I found that really interesting and very revealing of these mm -hmm. dynamics. Absolutely. What then do you think should be done? What, what should be improved about this system? Um, to some degree at an at an individual level, but I think the point's pretty clear that an individual doing something, it's really more of an organizational issue. So what do you think could, should, might be improved? Yeah, I mean, that's the big question, right? Often at the end of hearing about, hearing a critique is, so what is the right answer? And I think for this, it's really complicated. Yes, I think that that NGOs and um, other kinds of development organizations, faith-based organizations, government organizations, the UN, should think about these issues just A, right? <laughs> the, the very humble project of this book was just to open this discussion, which is never discussed, and to, um, to hope to encourage dialogue around this. I think once, once this is brought to the attention, most organizations would think, oh, well, we could do something about this by just having a standard about fair, wa fair wages for development workers or a code of conduct, a code of ethics that for our employees to follow when they engage with people, when they engage people in paid domestic labor in under the banner of working for our organization. Um, they could even think about, and I think most organizations, most employers should think about how they take care into consideration in paying wages for their employees, right? How, and this is, you know, reproductive labor is something that should be thought of in terms of compensation in general. Um, it's something that states and employers do a really bad job of, which is considering um, the employee as a whole related person that has caregiving responsibilities as well. So I think, you know, more broadly, that could be, um, that could be considered. I also think that the book points to a bigger question than just what, what protocols could be put in place to make this better. And that is, what are these expats doing there, <laughs> right? Um, who, and, and one of the biggest questions of the book is who are the real beneficiaries of the aid industry? And so paying attention to the rewards of this kind of economic migration that I've talked about. And many people, I should say, are, are starting to write really important um, books and articles, studies on the inequities within the aid industry between foreign and expat workers and local workers, right? These huge packages of perks and um, big inflated salaries and things like, you know, um, housing and security that aren't given to local workers, right? This is a big concern and, and luckily is drawing more and more attention. So I think this, this project also points to questions about how the industry is structured in terms of favoring um, foreigners or expats um, in, in ways that might have legacies, that do have legacies in um, the foundations of the aid industry, which are colonial. So a big takeaway from this book too is, is 
thinking about how coloniality is reproduced through the development agency and not in any way um, reduced by it. So thinking about how these contemporary dynamics echo older dynamics of privilege, power, and really racialized um, power dynamics that continue to structure the aid industry. So I think little fixes like a code of conduct or um, a code of ethics for employing domestic workers are easy to do. I don't think that they're going to really address the bigger problem, which is that this is an industry that is um, that has a lot of self-reflection to do about why things are structured the way they are and what kinds of inequities they actually perpetuate instead of um, reducing. A lot of very important things to think about um, and quite obviously a lot of contributions from the book. Um, so thank you for sharing them with us. I'd love to just end on uh, the simple question for me to ask and often very unfair question for me to ask given that this book has just been finished. <laughs> um, but is there anything you might have your eye on to work on next, whether or not it's on this topic, whether or not it's a book? Yeah, thanks for the question. And um, yeah, books take a million years to come out. So of course, my, my brain has been racing ahead to the next thing. Um, one of the projects, <clears throat> sorry, one of my new projects is to, with my colleague Ellen Foley, Dr. Ellen Foley, who's at Clark University, we are embarking on research on the gendered and racial politics of study abroad. So particularly study abroad in Africa, I think, um, in the U.S. especially, this, but also in the U.K., I think in other places, this idea that going overseas is a really valuable part of education in forming a global citizen, in um, high-impact educational activities, right? There's, there's a lot of talk about study abroad, and certainly in the U.S., it's, it's a real industry now. Um, and I think one of the things, though there have been real advances in thinking about community-engaged learning domestically, um, also anti-racist pedagogy domestically, I think those um, there that hasn't yet really translated to how do we think about study abroad as a project um, that also has imperial roots, right? This the end framing of you know the world is yours to explore and to extract value for yourself from um, that. So those are the kind of the big questions. And then the smaller questions, um, we're working in a neighborhood in Dakar, Senegal, that has hosted American students for over 40 years in family homestays. And so we are talking to former students, we're talking to study abroad staff, and we're talking to home families who have hosted American students for all these years about what are these relationships that are created really like, what are the impact of these programs, both for the students, but also for the communities that they enter. Um, and in the case of Senegal, there are a lot of marriages that result from the study abroad endeavor. So following these marriages and thinking about the migration chains that are also created out of this study abroad endeavor, um, it, that's that's the new project. And um, we're just getting started, but I think it's has a lot of potential to um, to be a really expansive project about, about, again, racialized and gender dynamics of power. Absolutely fascinating. Hopefully that becomes a book and we can have you back to tell us all about it. I would love um, that. Brilliant. But in the meantime, of course, while you're off working on that, um, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Aid and the Help, International Development and the Transnational Extraction of Care, published by Stanford University Press. Diana, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, Miranda. Thank you for having me. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.